It's my joy this morning to continue uh, in the series on the Master's Morality. And if you have your Bibles with you, and if we can get some light, it'd be great to have you open to Ephesians chapter 3. And just as we begin, I'd like to return back to the passage Dr. MacArthur made reference to and spoke out of the other day. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's prayer there for the saints at Ephesus. As you can barely make out in your Bibles, for this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. To be strengthened, verse 16, to be strengthened with power through his spirit, in the inner man. As I was studying that passage, that one particular phrase grabbed my mind and my heart and how I long in my own soul to be stronger than I am in the inner man and how that would answer the cry of my heart for obedience to God, that I would be more regularly obedient to the living God. If only I could know something more If only you could know something more of what it means to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man. You ever wonder why some men are so strong and others are so weak? You ever wonder why Abraham, where he got the strength to take a hold of that dagger and lift it up over his only son and begin to drive it down to kill him, except that the angel stopped him from that? the voice of the Lord, how Joseph, where he found the inner strength day after day to be in the presence of Potiphar's wife as she continually invited him to be involved in immorality, and yet he said no and no and no again until finally she grabbed his garment and he still had the strength to run out the door. You ever wonder where Moses got the strength when coming down from Mount Sinai with the law and he found the nation of Israel that they had eaten and they had drunk and were now drunk and they had arisen to play, the word for sexual activity. There was a national orgy going on and God in his anger said, I'm going to wipe all these people out and I'm going to start a whole new program and a whole new nation through you, Moses. Where did Moses find the strength to say to God, no, let me remind you of the promise you made to Abraham. You can't wipe that nation out. It would, it would speak poorly of who you are as the God, as a covenant-keeping God. You ever wonder where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found the strength in their inner man to face King Nebuchadnezzar and to be escorted over to the fiery furnace and to see the man bringing them to the fiery furnace expire for the heat and then be thrown in there? Where did they get the strength? All they had to do was recant and bow down to the golden image, but they didn't. Where did Stephen find the strength in his inner man to continue to preach the gospel to people as he saw the people bend over, pick up stones, and begin to throw them at him with the intention to, and they did, eventually kill him? Where did Paul find the strength in his inner man, somewhere inside, to also continue to preach the gospel in one prison and out of the next until finally historians tell us his head was chopped off. All he had to do was recant. All he had to do was soften his message. All he had to do was back up a little bit and he would have lived a longer, healthier life. And of course, the ultimate example of inner strength 
Where did our Lord Jesus Christ find the strength to continue to walk down the path with that cross upon his back and allow mere humans to nail him to it, lift it up, and drop it in the ground? To be strengthened with power through the Spirit of God in the inner man. Where does that strength come from? How come Cain was such a weak and feeble man, not physically, he won the, ba the battle or the fight, so to speak, of physical. He lost the spiritual battle and he rose up and he killed and slew his brother Abel. What was going on inside of Esau? Why was he so weak, so emaciated, so small, of such little impact that he would sell his entire birthright on the impulse of his hunger? Give away his entire inheritance for one meal. What was wrong with Lot's wife as she ran away from the city and couldn't resist but looked back and became a pillar of salt? Why couldn't King Saul wait for the prophet Samuel to come and pronounce the Lord's blessing? But instead of waiting, he ran off into battle and got hundreds of men killed and was also removed from his kingship forever. What a weak man in the inner man. What was going on inside of David? Why was he so frail? Why was he so weak? Where was his inner strength as he gazed out upon the rooftops and saw Bathsheba and then said to someone, go fetch her for me? And then when she came, why was he so weak in that whole process that he eventually had sex with her? What had happened to his inner man? And what was wrong with Peter? as he denied even knowing Christ. What makes some men so strong and others so very weak? And as we look at our own lives, we think about the goals that we have set but never accomplished, the resolutions we've made only then to break them, the schedules we've promised to keep, the exercise programs about now we're all trying to crank up, the eating habits we're affirming we're going to change, but the changes we have wanted to make now, many of them good for so many years and after so many attempts and despite the fast starts and the good intentions, we search in vain oftentimes in our lives to find evidence of really meaningful and significant lasting change. Even more important to us than our schedules and our exercise programs, our eating habits, our study programs would be the strength of our spiritual health, the condition of our souls, the changes we would love to see made on the inside. The kind of loving, selfless, gracious, thoughtful people we want to become. And we've been wanting to become that kind of a person for so many years. But the progress seems so slow. The changes so few. And here we are again. The time in the Word of God that we want to spend on a regular basis. The Scriptures we want to commit to memory. The long periods and seasons of prayer that we know we need, that we know would make a tremendous difference in our lives if we could just get the inner strength to regularly and consistently devote ourselves to the spiritual disciplines. But the discouraging, disheartening tendency within us to fall back into the sins which so easily beset us. We can remember times of great desperation to change and to grow. We can remember flocking to the latest Christian book, the latest Christian author, offering techniques and systems and steps, 
guaranteeing results. Promise you that if you follow these six steps, you're going to get results in your spiritual life. You're going to live differently. You're going to know more peace and more joy and more blessing than you've ever known before. But as that fast start began to wane into the throes of everyday life and in the heat of the battle, we find in our own lives and in the lives of our friends in whom we long to see meaningful change, yet again the resolutions have been broken, the weight is still on, the studies are still left undone, the relationships are still ravaged by our sinfulness, the besetting sins are still besetting us, and we, like the dog, have once again returned to our vomit. We're a frail group. The inner man. It's at moments of crisis such as these where we as Christians throw up our hands to acknowledge the fact that the sin is too deep, the character is too weak, the soul is too selfish, the heart is too corrupt, the will is too unwilling, and the faith is too small. And it dawns on us once again that we have caved in in the inner man. That the inner man is too weak to stand firm against temptation. That our inner man is too timid to face the bitter, agonizing side of obedience for a long time in the same direction. That our inner man is too undernourished to weather the stormy night and wait for the calm of daybreak. Questions flood our mind. Why do I still struggle this way? Why do I do what I know I don't want to do? How can I know so much about myself and how I work? The Word of God and the resources that are there, God Himself, the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. How can I know so much and continue to live the way I do? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Identify with that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have... A strong inner man, a fortified, braced, supported inner man that gave you the kind of strength that you wanted to be able to pursue the kinds of things and the directions that you really desire and to see the kind of change you long for so desperately. The inner man is a term that's used in Scripture. It's a very broad term. Its, its contrast is the outer man. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul talks about the outer man versus the inner man. The outer man is your body. It's your physical parts. The, the bones, the muscle, the organs, the fluid, everything that makes you up as far as a physical being. The outer man. The inner man is everything about you that's left. It's your soul. It's your heart. It's your spirit. Your mind, your will, your reason, your conscience, your emotions, your ability to think. Everything about you that isn't physical is captured in this big term called the inner man. And Paul, in this passage, describes the fact that the inner man can be strengthened. The word strengthened means, as I've alluded already, it can be fortified, it can be braced, it can be built up. Like a strong fort, the inner man can be strengthened as opposed to weakened. And in the context of the passage that we're briefly looking at before we go to the book of Romans, we see in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
And then verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The power that he's calling upon there is the power of God. It's outside who you are. He is not praying that you as an individual, as a Christian, as someone who is new in Christ, as someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that you would begin to use the resident power within you, though you have some of that and you need to use it. The prayer here is different. The prayer is that God would bring from an outside source, God himself, that he would infuse your inner man with power and therefore strengthen and fortify it against the temptations to sin. And he does it by getting down on his knees. Paul is a great preacher and Paul is a great man of God and he has impacted many, many lives face to face. But having said all he has to say, having ministered in the city of Ephesus for over a year and a half and having now now locked in prison, he says, but now I am down on my knees before God and I am praying that he will send his power to infuse your inner man with the strength that you need that you might walk the obedient life. It's a beautiful picture. To be down on your, on your knees in prayer. Now, on your knees is not the only way to pray. We see in Scripture you can pray when you're walking, when you're lying down, when you're running. You can pray any way you want. There is no prescribed posture of prayer. I personally favor being on my knees. Paul was often on his knees. To me, it symbolizes tremendous vulnerability. When you are down on your knees, you are defenseless. You can't defend yourself. You can't fight. You can't do any work. You don't even think very well. I mean, you're down on your knees and you're slumped over and there's a position you can't see. You don't even know who's coming. You're just closed down and you're in a tremendously vulnerable position. To me, being on your knees also speaks of great dependence. Can't do any work from your knees, really. Can't get much done. It's tough to study on your knees. It's tough to fix your car on your knees. It's tough to do much of anything. It says, I am not in charge. I am not the one that's going to solve this problem. I have fallen down here on my knees as an expression of my heart, which feels incredibly vulnerable to the temptations that are around me. And I'm expressing my complete dependence upon you that if, in fact, I'm going to have a stronger inner man, it's going to be because you, my gracious, loving, heavenly father, have infused it into my soul. And so that is the heart of the man who would receive such power. The core of the inner man, would you look then again at verse 17? Having prayed that we would receive power through his spirit in the inner man, he goes on to say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, why is he being redundant here? He's already prayed for strength in the inner man. Now why is he praying that Christ would dwell in my heart? Christ dwells in my heart for the moment I'm saved. That's one of the blessings of salvation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. From the moment you accept Jesus Christ, He moves into your life. He takes up His residence through the Spirit of God. The idea being that Christ would dwell. The word dwell is to settle down, to be at home, to be relaxed, as Dr. MacArthur said the other day, so He can sit comfortably in the rooms of your soul. Your living room, your dining room, your library, the various areas in which you do the things that you do. He wants to be completely and totally at home in your soul. But it's interesting that having talked about the inner man, which includes all of you are on the inside, he points out the heart is the place that Christ would like to dwell. And that is because the heart is at the core of who you are. The very most, most central part of who you are is your heart. We won't take the time this morning to turn to all the passages, but we could easily prove that. 
We could show that the will goes back to the heart. The seat of your will, your ability to make your choices, the seat of that is in your heart. The seat of your ability to think and reason and make choices and evaluate options finds its seat in the heart. Your emotions, it's called the heart of joy or a glad heart or a sad heart. Your, your emotions also find their seat in your heart. The heart is the place from which all of that stems. Even your ability to worship God finds its seat in your heart. Your ability to be in relationship with God and with people. It all comes back. Everything in your inner man, like spokes on a wheel, all come back to the hub, your heart. And so he says, that is where I would hope that Christ could dwell. At the very center of who you are, it would be right for God, for the living Christ to be at home, to be comfortable and to be dwelling there. That should be our objective. So while the heart is the seat of all you are, for the time remaining this morning, I want to talk about the avenue to the heart. Many things give expression to the heart. Your mouth gives expression to your heart. The man speaks out of that which fills what? His heart. When you open your mouth and you talk, it is an instant barometer, an indicator of what is going on in your heart. Your mouth ventilates your mouth. Jesus also says that your treasure reveals the condition of your heart. In order to know the condition of a man's soul, the condition of his heart, the spiritual well-being of his inner man, you can look not only at his words, but you can look at his, his checkbook. Find out where he is investing his life, his time, his money. And if you see those things going towards earthly things, Jesus says the man's heart is set on earthly things. But if you see the man investing his time and his resources and his money in people, then he is investing his, himself in heavenly things. So there are many ways for the heart to ventilate. Many places and many ways for us to evaluate what's going on inside of the heart. But the question I'd like, or the, the thing I'd like to discuss this morning, is what do, we, what do we get into our heart? How do we impact what resides inside the heart? And for that reason, I'd like to talk about the mind. The mind is the number one avenue into the inner man. The mind has its seat in the heart, and it is the only part of you that takes in data. It controls all of your senses. It makes the choices that you expose your eyes to, whether good things or bad things. Your feet run you into ministry or into trouble. Your hands are used for yourself or they are used for other people and your mind controls it all. Nothing gets into the inner man that does not come through the senses and the senses are directed and controlled by the mind. Nothing gets into you, humanly speaking. God, of course, can infuse his power, but from the human vantage point, it all has to come through the senses which are controlled by the mind. And with the exception of being forced into something, forced into a rape situation where you're raped by force or you're being abused as a child and this thing is being imposed on you, the mind chooses and directs the body to receive stimuli. In other words, you have tremendous choice over what you're going to allow through your senses, and once in your senses, into your mind, and your mind, a direct channel to your heart. And if you lose your heart, if you pollute your heart, if you give yourself voluntarily spiritual heart disease, there are serious consequences. Now, as we would look at the mind this morning, I'd like to do it from the book of Romans. 
So instead of the Romans road to salvation, I would offer the Romans road to mental health or mental maturity. And we'll start in the very familiar chapter, Romans chapter 1. And I've entitled this first point, Reaping the Ruin. Reaping, as if you're reaping what you've sown. Reaping the Ruin. We find in this passage some words, four words, which are the most terrifying in my mind in all of Scripture. In verse 24, you'll find them. In verse 26, you'll find them. And in verse 28, you'll find them of Romans chapter 1. They are the words, God gave them over. There's a group of people in mind here, and God is systematically giving them over, first to their own lusts, the lusts of their hearts, to the impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What God is saying here is that this group of people have lustful desires in their hearts. These are unregenerate people. These lustful desires are inbred. They are born in. And though we don't know it, it's not pointed out. It's certain that they have fed the lust within by receiving stimuli and data that has gone into their mind and fed and corrupted, further corrupted their heart. God is giving them over in verse 24 to the lusts of their hearts, to heterosexuality, to be involved in fornication. Secondly, he gives them over in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over this time to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. First, he gives them over to heterosexuality. And then he gives them over to homosexuality. And then lastly, in verse 28, he gives them over to a depraved mind. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. It's hard to pin down just what a depraved mind is. It's a mind without a mind. It's a mind without a conscience. It's a mind which delights in evil, which pursues evil, which calls evil good. A depraved mind is devoid of the conscience that pricks in your heart and your mind when you perceive something that is evil. It is a mind that has been so totally given over to the things of evil and the things of the world that it no longer can function as God intended it to function. It's a horrible state of affairs. What I want you to notice is that first God gives them over to heterosexuality, then to homosexuality, and then to a mind without a mind, which opens up all the incredibly gross possibilities that we hear about in the media that the people of America are currently engaging in. But I'd like you to notice where it all started. You know, it didn't start with the heterosexuality. It didn't start with the fornication. It started a step before the behavior. To see where it started, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This horrible step-by-step -step progression into the most gross depravity we could think of started in the mind. 
God, through creation, as the passage goes on to describe, reveals and yells to the human being his existence. And instead of that human being being taking that truth and mentally submitting to that truth and giving that truth to the heart, whereby the heart could submit and eventually the knowledge of Jesus could save the soul, the mind says, I reject the truth. I want nothing to do with the truth, but it's so overbearing, I have to hold it down. With my mind, I am constantly, actively suppressing the truth of God, which is evident in creation. And because they made the mental choice to suppress with their minds the truth of God, God began to give them over. Two simple points I'd like to draw from this chapter. One, people don't just run out and sin. People don't just wake up in the morning, find somebody, and commit fornication. People don't just instantaneously rob a bank. People don't just on the spur of a moment, without any thought, cheat on a test. Or betray the confidence of a friend. The action is always preceded by thought. The musing of the mind, and then the action follows. There is no such thing as, as unpremeditated murder. Premeditated murder, the kind of stuff where you sit around and you're planning and plotting and calculating the murder and you watch your victim and you know where and when and how and then you strike. Premeditated murder. There's a severe penalty for that. It's called death. But you can get off the hook sometimes if it's just, if it's just a, a crime of passion. If it was unpremeditated. If I didn't even know what I was doing. If I suddenly just struck out and killed my wife. No such thing. No such thing. The murder was long ago premeditated. Not the act itself, but in harboring the anger and the bitterness and the hatred in the heart and in the mind and beginning to perceive this person as who they are for weeks in advance and years in advance by not cleansing the mind and cleansing the heart of how you view that person, you have been premeditating their murder for a long, long time. And what finally comes out is a reaction of what your mind has been carrying for who knows how long. There is no such thing as premeditated murder. There is no such thing as a premeditated action. Everything we do in our life in one way or another, whether immediate and directly related or indirectly, is the product of what we have been thinking, of what we have been harboring, and how our mind has been feeding and corrupting, or else feeding and strengthening our heart and therefore our inner man. The heart, excuse me, the mind is the avenue to the heart and to the inner man. So we are apt to labor under the delusion that if I am not actually committing the sin itself, that I'm just thinking about it, it's not so bad. And that's the second principle I'd like to draw from this passage, that God holds people accountable not just for their actions, but for their thought life. God is just as concerned with what is going on inside your mind as He is with what's going on in your behavior. And there is no more dangerous posture in spirituality to assume than that I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I'm not really okay, but I'm not really bad. I'm just thinking about these things now. I'm just desiring these things. This is purely a mental battle at this point, so I'm kind of okay. And, but, but, but the danger in that is that what you think you will eventually do. If you think it long enough, if you muse on it, if you meditate it, if you absorb it into your soul, it will eventually come out. 
God would prefer that you draw the line of holiness in your life at your thought life. There is no such thing as premeditated or unpremeditated sin. It's all a product of what you've been doing with your mind. Two, God holds you accountable for it. Three, it'll eventually work its way out in your life. What you're struggling with in your thought life today, if you think about it long enough, if you continue to give room to it, if you continue to nurture it, if you continue to find sources which stimulate whatever it is, not just sexual sins, but gossip and relational violations in, in roommates and situations with your parents and your studies and the kind of life you want to live, whatever it is, you feed the wrong mentality long enough, you'll corrupt your inner man, you'll corrupt your heart, and you'll eventually begin to live it. <coughs> The next point that I'd like to draw from the book of Romans is over in chapter 6. I've entitled this one, Reckoning with Reality. Reckoning with Reality. This is a wonderful chapter, wonderful book. But if you look at verse 11 for a minute, it says there in verse 11, Romans 6, 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I grew up on the King James Schofield version before I was converted to the New American Standard, a Bible I can read and understand. And the word consider there, in the King James Version, the, the original, I mean the older one there, was reckon. So instead of consider, it was reckon, vis-a-vis -vis my second main point, reckoning with reality. The word consider, or the word reckon, in the Greek, is a mathematical term. It is a banking term. It is a business term. It is a term of, of uh, calculating. And what God is asking us to do with our minds is to add up the facts about our situation. Add up the facts about who we really are in Christ. What he basically is saying is do not live on your feelings. Live on the facts of what the redemptive process has created you to be in the person of Jesus Christ. In the battle against sin, each of us fights the flesh. Each of us fights our feelings, our emotions, our tendencies, and they come from deep within us. And resisting temptation at points can seem absolutely impossible because the desire from within to grab and seize the opportunity seems so strong, it is so innate, it is so us, that it almost seems hypocritical not to indulge. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, In our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce, with irresistible power. Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering of fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flame. It makes no difference if it is sexual desire, or ambition, or vanity, or desire for revenge. Joy in God is extinguished within us. And we seek all our joy in ourselves. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Satan does not here fill us with the hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Lust aroused envelops the mind and will in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within us rises up against the Word of God. We have no small battle with our flesh. It is not easy to resist temptation, 
Temptation is not just a category out there somewhere in theology. Temptation and our flesh and the desires of our humanness to reach out and seize the sinful passing pleasures of sin for a season is very real. It strikes us at the core of who we are. But the command of this passage is not to base your choices and your life upon that overwhelming desire or feeling or emotion. What God is asking us to do is to make our choices about our behavior based upon the facts. You say, what are the facts? Look at verse 6. Briefly, and it would take a long time to fully develop the passage. But in verse 6, we find the essential elements of the facts which God is wanting us to reckon, to add up and to calculate knowing there are three, that our old self was crucified with Him. That is the man you once were. That is the old man. That is who you were born as. That's your depravity. That's who you are as you come out of the womb, your old self. And you and I know that when we become Christians, we are born again. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that we become new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. This is the old thing that has passed away, the old self. And we become a new creature in Christ. Ephesians 4.24, created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. God gives us embryonic as it is, but a new heart and a new mind and a fresh inclination to love God and to seek after His Word and His will. We are new. We are ontologically different than we were before we made the decision to accept Jesus Christ. He says the fact is you are not this totally depraved unregenerate, sinful thing who does not seek after God, who turns always towards evil, you are now a new creature in Christ. Do you feel like that? Not always. In fact, it's hard for me to believe what you're saying just there about this new creature because I don't feel like it at all. Well, that's why he gives this command. The first command in the entire book of Romans. All these chapters so far, and yet not one command. He doesn't command anything until he's told us about the depravity of chapter 1, then the moral depravity of chapter 2, where you think you're good because you don't break these absolutes, this law, you don't commit fornication, you don't murder, but you're self-righteous and you're ugly and you're sinful. And then in chapter 3, he condemns all of us together. None righteous, none who understands, none who seeks for God. We've all turned aside. Together we've become useless. But then he talks about justification, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He illustrates what it takes to get that righteousness in chapter 4 with the faith, the faith of Abraham who apprehends the truth about God and receives Jesus Christ. Not a command in the book. Chapter 5 talks about the peace of God that we have the restoration of the relationship, still not a command. The first command in the entire book doesn't show up until chapter 6, verse 11, where he says to your mind, now I've told you who you are. I've told you all about your past, your justification, the essence of faith, the peace that you have with God. And as we scan the rest of the New Testament, that you're a new creature in Christ. You're indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to use your mind to add up the facts in a business mathematical sense to know what is true and base your choices upon the truth. Not your feelings. The truth. What else does he want us to know? Look there again in verse 6. That the body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin might be done away with. That's your flesh. That's your humanness. That's this desire that 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer was just describing, and the Bible says it's been done away with. You say, what are you talking about? My ability to respond to temptation, my lust of my flesh and of my eyes and the boastful pride of life, that hasn't been done away with in my life. I still feel it all the time. If you take a look at that word done away with, you'll find it only one other place in the New Testament. And it refers that Satan has been done away with. Satan has not been done away with either in the sense that he ceases to exist, that he's no longer here, that he no longer wages battle against the kingdom of God. He's very much alive and he's very active. In what sense then has Satan and has your flesh been done away with? They have been ultimately defeated. They have been taken out of absolute control. They do not have absolute authority anymore. Once Jesus Christ died on the cross, Satan's doom was finalized. He is not in absolute control. His power to be absolute total monarch of the world is no longer intact. God is in control. He is not done away with in the sense that He is extinct. He is very active, but He is not in absolute control. The same is true with your body. The same is true with our physical desires, our, our lust, the flesh, the boastful pride of life, our pride. It has not been done away with in the sense that it's extinct. It's just been done away with in the sense that it is no longer in absolute control. What does that mean? That means that you and I have the opportunity for the first time as Christians to choose not to sin. The Christian sins because it's a choice. The Christian is never compelled to sin. You can never say, the devil made me do it. You can never say, I had no choice. It was too tempting. You can say, it felt too tempting, and I agree with you, but you can never say, it was too tempting. I had no choice. The fact is, you do have a choice. The old self has been crucified. The body of flesh has been done away with. Why? Verse 6 again, the third thing I want out of that verse, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We're free. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. We can choose to be slaves to sin. We can use our will and our mind instead of reckoning what is true about us to be influenced by the flesh and by the world and by Satan. And we can choose to become the slaves of sin. But we don't have to. Reckon reality. When you are in the throes of temptation... When you feel deeply in your soul the desire to reach out and to grab some sinful thing, whether it's a juicy choice bit of gossip or some slander or the opportunity to procrastinate and waste your time and not do what you know God wants you to do. Whatever the opportunity, and you begin to feel it deep and it's rising up inside and you feel as though you must grab onto it. Reckon reality. Part of your reality is how you feel about that sin. But there's a whole broader scope of reality which God is calling you to think about, to meditate on, and to act in light of. The reality that you, your old self has been crucified. That your body of sin has been done away with. You don't have to be a slave to sin. That God is on His throne. That Christ is resident within you. That the Word of God is active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God wants you to make your choices on the facts, not the feelings. As hard as that is. The third thing I'd like you to see about your mind is in Romans chapter 12. You knew I'd get there eventually. 
How can you speak on the mind and not touch on these two passages or two verses? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know this already, but just by way of review, you understand that the word conformed, the word conformed means to take a pose, like a model. And if we hired you to pose for the Master's College, an ad in Moody Monthly, and we said, well, we'd like to have you look like right now, you three students, is happy, friendly. So you would conform your wishes, yourself to our wishes, and you would look happy, even though you had a horrible day and you just flunked the test. It's not how you really feel. But you conform yourself to our request. Or you just got the greatest news in the world and you're so excited. It just so happens to be that this Christmas your family is not going to have the traditional Christmas at home. You're going to Park City, Utah, where you'll be skiing for two straight weeks. The tickets are on their way in the mail. You can hardly wait. But we need a picture of somebody who's really studying. So you fake a pose. You conform yourself to look intellectual for those brief moments. You bow your head, you look contemplative. You're none of those things at that moment. To be conformed. It's amazing what the Bible is saying here. You realize what the Bible is saying? Because of who you are in Christ, because you are new in the person of Christ, because you're a new creature, because you've been created in holiness and righteousness, because you're born again. When you or I, as born-again creatures, begin to entertain and do the things of the world, we are conforming ourselves to the world. We are taking a pose which is not truly us. Isn't that wonderful? I'm different. You're different. When you indulge in sin, you're conforming to the world. So refreshing. He doesn't say, be who you really are. You know, stop being who you really are. Stop sinning like that. He says that to the unregenerate. To you and me, when we're in sin, he says, stop conforming to that stuff. That's not who you are. Stop taking that pose. Be yourself. Be yourself. And that's what the word transforming talks about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transform, metamorphosis. You know, going from a little bit of who you are to a lot of who you are. The process of metamorphosis. The little polywog in the pond. He's already really a frog. He doesn't look like it yet. So as he continues to eat and grow up, he transforms into a frog. That's what Jesus wants you and I to do. We are in our embryonic state as young Christians. We, are, we have everything we need. We are complete. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the Bible says. You have it all. It's just an embryonic form. You haven't learned to use it all yet. It hasn't had its full impact on your life. And so you struggle with being conformed to what you aren't and, and struggle with being transformed into what you already are. Continue to become what you already are is what he's calling us to be. And that, in its essence, is all of sanctification. That's the doctrine of sanctification for the Christian. Becoming what you already are. You know what the whole thing hinges on? The next phrase. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. The mind is how you... Effect that process. 
how you affect that process. God works in supernatural ways. But for you and for me, the objective is to renew the mind. To take out what is in and put in what ought to be there. To change the database, so to speak. The brain is a fascinating thing. And I have as my favorite book, one of my favorite books, the book In His Image. How many of you have read it? In His Image by Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it to you. I'd like to quote from it this morning as we close about your brain and about your mind. I think you'll be fascinated. Listen to what it has to say. Dr. Paul Brand says this. My brain presents the world to me not in data banks and reductionist blips, but wholly, conceptually, and meaningfully. Now watch this. Herein is the great mystery. My mind that coordinates all this profound activity lies locked away. The brain itself never sees a thing. Your brain has never seen a thing in its all its life. If, in fact, your brain was opened up to the light, it would do irreparable damage to your brain. Brain's never seen a thing. Your brain never hears. The brain is so sheltered and cushioned inside your skull that it feels only the most, the most reverberant sensations, only the slight reverberations of what happens out here on the outside. Brain doesn't hear that. Your ears hear that. The brain does not experience touch. There are no touch or pain cells there. Its temperature varies no more than a few degrees. It has never felt hot or cold. It never sustains a mechanical force. Upon meeting up with one, it would quickly lapse into unconsciousness. Everything that forms me, he says, Paul Brand, reduces down to a sequence of dots and dashes. You know, like Morse code, dot, dash, dash, dot, dot, dot. Coming from all of my senses, reporting from millions of remote stations throughout my body into this bony box that has never directly experienced any of those sensations. The taste of chocolate, the pick of a pin, the sound of a violin, the view of the Grand Canyon, the smell of vinegar, all these reach my consciousness via signals that are virtually identical. I perceive them because tiny flower-shaped neurons have shot chemicals at each other. The common catalog of my five senses, the sight, the hearing, the touch, the taste, and the smell, hardly covers all that is taking place. Other vital senses inform me of muscle tension and the pressure of joints and tendons. I know instinctively of the tilt of my head, the bend of my elbow, the position of my left foot. Different sensors inform me of lunchtime. My stomach feels empty. Many of you are experiencing that sensation as we speak. Below the conscious level, automatic systems adjust the chemical components of blood, control air pressure in my lungs, and blood pressure in my arteries. They monitor the organ stretch receptors. My brain, isolated in its thick ivory box, some of us thicker than others, receives all these signals in a kind of electrical Morse code. Your brain has never sensed anything, never seen anything, never touched anything, never felt anything. It's this little three and a half pound of mush inside your skull. And if it was ever exposed, you'd expire. He goes on to describe what it looks like. Listen to what your physical brain looks like. At first sight, the brain coiled extravagantly and pinkish gray in color, uncannily resembled the lower intestines. Well, okay. It had the consistency of paste or cream cheese, 
making the actual brain encountered quite different from the one we would expect after studying that solid-looking rendition from the anatomy textbooks. The brain's walnut-shaped appearance had endless fascination for me as I kept dissecting. By this time, he has his own head, you see. He's in medical school. He's got his head with his brain in it. He's trying to figure out how all the nerves lead back to the brain. Thrilling book. You ought to buy it. He says, uh, I kept dissecting. Its landscape of the brain, it dipped and rose and turned in on itself. A topographical map of all the mountains on earth compressed into one tiny little space. Red and blue lines crisscrossed the topography and I breathed the prayer of thanks that I was practicing on a dead brain. Even with all the blood vessels, the membrane linings, the fluid-filled cavities, the billions of specialized nerve cells, the organ weighed barely three pounds. That's all we've got up there. Yet the fragile, grayish jelly once contained a whole life. Everything you and I are up there in that three and a half little pound of cream cheese mass. Speak for yourself. The brain contains imagination, morality, sensuality, mathematics, memory, humor, judgment, religion, as well as the incredible catalog of facts and theories and the common sense to assign them all priority and significance. The brain floating in its ivory box in a pool of cerebrospinal fluid contains the person I really am. Now watch. Every other cell in my body ages and is replaced every seven years. Look at your hand. It's not the same one you had seven years ago. Look at your feet. Look at your arm. Every single cell in your body, he tells us, I believe him, replaces itself every seven years such that the skin you view now is not the same skin you had. And that happens everywhere, internally and externally in your entire body. My skin, eyes, heart, even bones are entirely different today from those I carried around just one decade ago. In all respects but one, I am now a different person. Guess, guess what that one exception is? The exception being my brain. My neurons and nerve cells never replaced. These maintain the continuity of selfhood that keeps the entity of Dr. Paul Brand alive. Fascinating. No wonder the scripture says it must be what? Renewed. Every experience you've ever had is locked up there in your cream cheese. It's all there. You can't recall it. And when you're sitting there on a test, you know you knew the answer. You can't get to it, but it's all there. It never goes away. Once the data is entered, it never, never, ever leaves. A doctor by the name of Wilder Penfield, tough to struggle through life with a name like that, a brain surgeon in Montreal found that in certain portions of the brain, he could electrically stimulate memories in sharp detail. With these little, you know, they open your head up and they stick little probes in your brain. And it would stimulate memory. Listen to what, he ha- what happened to him. He had one South African patient, patient who began laughing, reliving second by second an incident on a farm in his native land. A woman recalled every note in a symphony concert she had heard long before. The memories 
surged up in such vivid detail for one patient on the operating table that she remembered sitting at a train crossing years before and could verbally describe each train car as it went by. It's all there. Another patient counted aloud the number of teeth of a comb used in childhood. Your brain never forgets a thing. In all of medicine, he goes on, and I'll close with this. There is no more shocking procedure than brain surgery. Listen to this. It seems a violation, brain surgery, as terrifyingly sacrilegious as bursting into the Holy of Holies. No one who opens a human skull escapes this grim sense of defilement. For centuries, the human brain remained undrawn or sketched only in rough caricature. The mysterious organ daunted even the brave pioneer da Vinci, who shown by, who, as shown by his hesitant and inexacting studies. He says, I knew how authentic brain surgeons proceeded. I had seen them slice through layers of scalp, muscle, and membrane, and peel these, and peel these back to reveal the gleaning bone of the skull. I had watched in amazement as those surgeons huffed and puffed leaning some 20 degrees off the vertical to force a whirling bit through the quarter-inch sheath of bone. A cloud of fine bone dust would sometimes form and float through the room. By the time they drilled and sawed through enough skull to lift a trap door into the brain, perspiration had beaded their faces. Now watch. There is a reason to all this grotesqueness. Nothing so well fortified can be entered without a twinge of foreboding. My cadaver's skull was as nearly impregnably orbed of granite that had sealed off its owner's brain from every nuance of sensation, temperature, moisture, or other disturbance in the outside world. Your brain is completely locked up, safe and sound. God has marvelously put the control center of your life up here in your skull where it is cannot be touched by outside influences. Which brings us back to where we started. The only influences which get to your brain and therefore get to your inner man and therefore get to your heart are what you let get there. It is your treasure. Guard it. It is marvelous and magnificent what God has given us in our brains, in our minds. What are you doing with yours? We can be so indiscriminate in what we expose ourselves to. The friends we choose. The impact that they have on us. The books that we choose to read. The movies that we choose to watch. The places that we choose to go. The things that we drink, smoke, or otherwise ingest into our systems. It really makes a huge difference to the strength of your inner man. Whether your life will be cataloged among the strong who fought the good fight. Or whether your life will be cataloged among the weak. Much of where you will land in your life hinges on what you do with your mind. It's a tremendous treasure. And spiritual success or failure hinges on what you do with it. 
Your mind is a pipeline straight into the inner man and from there to your heart. Let's close in a word of prayer.